Um, so I'm going to read for a bit, and then Lindsay and I will chat, and then I think we'll take some questions for you guys if you have any, um, and then it'll be over. Um, this is my book, as kids know. Um, it, a couple of things you need to know before I read. It takes place in 2002 in New Jersey, and um, it alternates between three characters, um, three narrators. Tonight, I think I'll only read from two. Um, the first character, this is Cullen's section. Cullen is a senior, um, and this is the moment where he first sees Ray, who is a freshman, um, and he has a crush on Ray's sister, Brielle, who's the third narrator, and she's a sophomore. Um, but they go to different schools. Cullen and Ray go to an all-boys school, and um, Brielle goes to an all-girls school, because that happens a lot in New Jersey. Um, so this is Cullen. I saw Ray in the library one morning before first bell. He was wearing headphones, bent over a computer screen. Funny-looking kid, not ugly or anything like that, more like he reminded me of the mouse from an American tale. Fievel Mouskowitz, brownish blonde, almost gray hair, big eyes and a short, upturned nose that, even if he weren't skinny as hell and even if his faint face weren't as smooth, smooth as a 12-year-old girl's, would make him look forever like a little kid. He'd pulled his seat absurdly close to the computer screen, shoulders hunched like he didn't want anyone to see what he was doing. When I walked over, I saw why. He was watching videos of people jumping out of the burning towers on September 11th. At first, I didn't say anything. He didn't seem to know I was there, so I stood behind him and watched. Last year, from Mrs. Montagna's class on the third floor of the school, which stood on the side of a hill in South Orange, I'd watched the towers come down. We saw it happen before we turned on the news. It only took one of us staring out the window at the right moment. Easy enough considering there was nothing to do but stare out the damn window and wonder what was going on in that wild city out there across the river. Peter Grimaldi pointed out the smoke. Mrs. Montagna tried to keep her lesson going, but when she saw what we saw, she quit talking and stared with the rest of us. We put the news on the classroom TV. While they were showing the first tower blow smoke like some rusty tailpipe, the second plane glided into the other tower and exploded. Until that point, we'd been in kind of a confused daze trying to figure out what the hell was going on. But when the news showed a fireball blast out of the second tower, the room erupted into chaos. There was a lot of shouting and swearing. The kids who had cell phones pu pulled them out. Others raced to the payphones. Mrs. Montagna couldn't stop them. Some guys had parents in those buildings. I kept glancing out the window and back to the TV and back out the window. And then they fell. First one tower, then the next. I remember later that week and throughout the following months seeing a video on the news of a guy jumping out of one of the towers, but nothing like, nothing like what Ray was watching. He watched one clip after another of people falling, dozens of jumpers, maybe hundreds. Fuck, I said aloud. Ray spun his chair around to see me. His eyes were red, but not from crying. He looked more tired than sad. The video kept playing. People crawled out of the building like bees from a honeycomb, and they fell fast. It wasn't like they floated down like wayward leaves. The bodies looked heavy and dropped right through the air like bullets. I tried to talk again, but my throat was tight. Ray took off the headphones. The hell, man, I choked out. What? The hell are you watching that for? He shrugged. It happened. He turned back to the screen. A guy had stuck his coat on the end of a mop and was waving it out the window. My stomach turned. He thought someone could help him. Why wouldn't he? How could he know? Eventually, the heat or maybe the smoke was too much, and he climbed out of the window trying to navigate down to the next floor. One hand slipped. He hung for a moment, and then the other hand went. This part had been edited into slow motion. This guy did, in fact, fall slowly. Arms and legs splayed out. He spun to the ground like a paper star. 
What's that supposed to mean? I spun the chair around so he faced me. It happened. So, I mean, don't you think you should see it? Just because it happened? The hell's the matter with you? He rubbed a hand into his eye. The bell for first period rang. I don't know, he said, yanking his backpack free from under his chair. He had a trembling energy that he tried to hold in, something deep down inside that he was trying to hide. I noticed a bruise creeping up from his collar, ugly and swollen, purple with spots of yellow. His hand went right to the welt when he saw me look at it. You a fighter? Just some kid in my class. What happened? Before gym, we fought once. Look, I gotta go. He tried to step around me, but I didn't let him. You fought back? Of course, he said. A terrible liar. His whole body shrunk under the weight of it. Why wouldn't I fight back? Who's the kid? Nick O'Dwyer. Yeah? Big dude. You land anything? Maybe. I don't know. It was all a blur, I guess. Guy's kind of a dick, huh? Ray looked at me. His eyes lit up. Yeah, he said. I hate him. He said the second part with strength in his voice. The first thing he'd said that I knew he felt certain about. He tried to move past me again. This time I stepped aside, and he hurried into the hall. Earlier that week... Once Bree was well enough to return to school, I'd surprised her at the field after practice, but she blew me off. I wasn't so naive to think that one innocent kiss in the woods between our houses would seal the deal, but I was still pretty stunned she'd tossed me aside so briskly. I watched her come out of the locker room with those same two blonde girls from the dance. She glanced once in my direction but didn't acknowledge me, so I called out to her. The three of them hesitated, eyeing me from across the lot. I waved. The two girls looked at Bree, waited for her next move. One of them laughed. Need her ride home, I ventured. The one girl laughed again, and then the three of them walked off. Bree said nothing. Not even no. Not even, why would I want to ride from you? Just nothing. But I wasn't pissed. In fact, after processing the initial blow, I was, grat- I was grateful. Because what I wanted, above all else, was to know Brielle. And this was a lucky little glimpse into an essential truth. Brielle O'Dell was embarrassed of me. Brielle O'Dell actually gave a damn what all those needle-nosed girls thought about her. She believed she was just like the rest of them. But I knew better. I knew she had a strange, glimmering star exploding inside her. And I knew now how to get close enough to prove it to her. I chased Ray into the hall. Hey! He glanced back once and scurried away. Ray O'Dell! I jogged up next to him. I can't be late. What are you up to later? I have to go to class. After school, I mean. Oh, I don't know. Nothing? All around us guys hurried to class, stomping, running, shouting, slamming lockers. I leaned in close to to Ray. Want to steal a car? I whispered. Confused but intrigued, he remained silent. I nodded at him. The second bell, the late bell, clanged out. Ray fidgeted, tugging on the straps of his backpack, tightening it. Senior parking lot. Mine's the Buick. Five minutes after last bell. Look at me. He lifted his head. Do not be late. That's all. Uh, okay, I'm going to read one more section because it's a little lighter and that was like kind of heavy. <laughs> Lighten the mood a bit. This one's shorter. So this is Ray. And Ray is in theology class. Um, the first line, I don't remember the first time I met him, is about his friend Amir, who they sort of forge a friendship throughout the, um, throughout the book as outcasts. And, uh, well, you'll see. Anyway, so this is Ray. I don't remember the first time I met him. It seemed like before we even said one word to each other, he was always just around. 
like the natural tilt of the universe had rolled us into the same dusty, forgotten corner. And so it only made sense that eventually we'd end up friends. There was one time, though, in theology with Father Joe when he made me laugh like crazy. Father Joe was one of those great teachers you meet sometimes who speaks to you like you're a real person. Just about everyone could get a word in during his class. Even I ventured to jump into the conversation every so often. He was always encouraging us to talk out our questions about faith and catechism and all that. And so one day, Sal Del Vecchio asked Father Joe if masturbation was really a sin, and do priests masturbate? And if it was a sin, and if priests did masturbate, did that mean that priests were all on the road to hell with the rest of us? We waited to see what would happen next. Father Joe ran a palm across his brow, which was covered in freckles. Well, he started, think of it like this. Imagine God puts you on earth with a million dollars. Each sin you commit costs a certain amount. If you spend the whole amount, you won't get into heaven. So murder, that's a big one. That's probably the whole million. Stealing, let's say that's 10,000. Lying, maybe 1,000. Yanking your own chain, in the grand scheme of things, probably be about a nickel. (laughs) We all laughed. Father Joe turned back to the board to continue with his lesson, and the class settled down. I, however, dug out my Algebra 2 calculator and started doing the calculations. <laughs> Next to me, Amir leaned over to see what I, what I was up to. When I showed him the tally, he smiled a little, like a kid about to do something he knows he not, he's not supposed to do, and raised his hand. I whispered at him, don't! Father Joe turned around, saw Amir's hand, and called on him. No way, I thought. There's no way he says it. Amir was a Saudi Arabian kid with a funny-looking bowl haircut who some kids, called toad, some kids called Toadstool, but who others had started calling Osama. It was such a stupid insult, not even the most basic attempt at being clever, but it was so easily accessible to everyone that it pretty much made it impossible for Amir to do or say anything without being subjected to immediate crushing ridicule by anyone in earshot. So no way did I expect him to speak up right then. In a way, I was right. Amir didn't say what I thought he was going to say. Nothing about the number on my calculator or what it signified. What he said was, Ray has something he wants to tell you. (laughs) I lost my breath. It felt like my heart had stopped and that if I were made to speak in that moment, it would never start up again. The entire class had turned around and was gawking at Amir and me. No, I managed to say, no, I don't. (laughs) Father, uh, Father Joe's eyes found me. He looked at me gently, curiously, like he was trying to tell me that no matter what Amir wanted me to say, I could say it. Somehow, Father Joe reacted to everything in that same way. Nothing ever surprised him. It was a big part of why we liked him. What's up, Ray? Amir held back a grin, motioning for me to speak. I noticed for the first time that he had a pale scar cutting across his eyebrow. Well, I said, I was just thinking that if uh, masturbation costs a nickel, and assuming you never committed another sin, that means you could masturbate 20 million times before going to hell. Amir couldn't hold it in anymore. He burst out laughing, and I did too. We dared to look at Father Joe. Something like that, he said. Amir giggled. That's pretty messed up, Father Joe. Yeah, well, Father Joe shrugged. Just make sure you keep count. Years go by. Things like that can add up quicker than you can. Amir and I laughed and laughed. I mean, it was really funny. And if we'd been different kids, if we were good at sports or had girlfriends, or maybe if we were a little bit bigger... We're just somehow different in a way that we would never really be able to understand. No doubt the rest of the class would have been laughing with us. But instead, all that happened was Maddie Gerhardt, the kid who sat in front of us, who had long hair and dirty fingernails and was always penning tattoos on the underside of his wrists during class, mumbled, low enough so Father Joe couldn't hear, but loud enough for everyone else to hear. Circle jerks caused extra homos. 
And of course, that's when the rest of the class erupted in laughter. Okay, now we'll do the obligatory fiddling with the microphones. Yes, good. You can hear me. I sound loud. That's good. You good? I'm great. Okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited that this isn't about me. I'm just thrilled. Uh, but we can't, I mean, if you want, no. we can talk about you. No. Okay. You. <laughs> uh, okay, my first question for you is, how does it feel? Uh, it feels great. It feels, um, I was, it's funny, she's not here um, but I was texting with Yvonne, uh, our yes. friend Yvonne, who's another author who also did a reading here. And she was like, don't you feel so excited and so weird? And I was like, <laughs> yes, that's exactly how I feel. So yeah. excited. But also, like, like the world has, has like, stolen my diary and everyone's <laughs> reading it. <laughs> you feel like your little people, your little teenagers are just out there and yeah, people yeah. are just going to love them. What's surprising to me was when people didn't love my teenagers, I just did not understand. Have you had any responses yet from people about your teenagers? Um, there's a few, like the, the um, you know, this, so this is a young adult book. Um, it like falls into that category. And so it, it's, some of the reviews are, have been on blogs, like young adult blogs and people talking about it. And yeah, there has been some of like, the reviews are funny, you know. They'll be like, "I didn't, I didn't." It's all about if they like the characters. If they like or not, the right? characters. Like, I didn't yeah. think Brielle should have gone to the store that day, <laughs> right. so I just couldn't connect right. with this book. <laughs> yeah, I had I had somebody not to talk about myself, but I had somebody write me an email saying that they really loved the book until the student had the affair with the teacher, and maybe I should rewrite it and have the parents intercept the text messages before the affair happens, because it would have been a lot less upsetting that way. And I said, well, why don't you write that? <laughs> but the flip side is, is you know, when, when teenagers really like something, they, they, they like really like it. That's you know, right. And they, they're like all in. Like there was one review on a blog that wasn't even, there wasn't, I don't think there was a complete sentence in the whole thing. It was just like, amazing, incredible, <laughs> so moving. Like it was just words. Yeah. <laughs> so, so JJ and I both wrote our debut novels about teenagers and we talked to each other. Actually, we never had a class together. Really? I don't think so. At MPW, I think we just w were in the same circles. Right. The circle <laughs> the circle that is here today. Um, but, uh, so we, but we talked a lot when we were in the process of getting agents and getting, and getting editors. And we both had books that were sort of... We were, one person described it as betwixt and between. Was, who's this for? Is this young adult or is this for adult readers? And then we got pushed in different directions. So my book got pushed into an adult direction. My editors had me add an adult character to my teenage book. And you went in the other direction. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about, first of all, what do you think is the difference between young adult and adult literature? Is it a real difference? Is it a marketing question? And and then what was the experience of editing, and uh, you know they they bought your book as a young adult novel. So what did that mean in terms of editing and writing? Right. Okay. So yeah, when I when I wrote the book, I wrote it sort of naively, like um, not really thinking about audience. I mean, it was there. Like I thought YA 
possibly. But but also, you know, before you publish anything, it's like nobody's going to read this crap anyway. I'll just write something and see what happens. And then I showed it to um, an agent um, who was fairly convinced it was YA and. Um, I'm sort of embarrassed now, but my reaction was like, okay, well, I'm a serious writer. You know, I, I'm a very smart guy, so I'm pretty sure it's not, it's not why. <laughs> um, which is totally unfair, because now I, like, I've met so many great people in the YA community, and they're, like, they're really talented people and writing great books. Um, but that, that's just like what my knowledge of that world was at the time. Um, so then, well, because YA didn't really exist when we were teenagers, I don't think. No, not really. We're around the same age, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't remember reading YA as a teenager. I don't remember it being a it thing that YA was marketed. It wasn't YA on purpose, right? Right. So, I mean, I think that this is sort of jump to you asked, like, what, how do, I think the only thing that, it is a marketing question, but I think YA just means that it's a book about teenagers in the voice of teenagers. So it's first person or at least through you know through their eyes through their perspective and i think that in the current market if you write a book like that it it becomes why it it's seems impossible to to f- place a book like that in the adult market because i tried um, <laughs> and and you know i sort of asked my agent can you can we submit it to adult editors um and he he said sure but he thought like they would all think it was ya and what actually ended up happening was all the ya editors say this is too adult and mm-hmm. all the adult editors said no this is ya why are you giving it to me but there was one guy <laughs> yeah, was like, always... all you need is one guy <laughs> or a woman one guy, yeah. um and he said i think like this isn't YA yet, but we can make it YA, and I'll give you a very small amount of money to do that. <laughs> you said thank you, <laughs> I said, sir. T- sold. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I had a very similar experience of people, different agents and editors, saying, "Oh, well, this is YA," and then I said, "I said the same thing." I said, "No, no, no, right. it's not." But your book is not YA. But my book is not YA. Right. But I, you know, but what, but. What's the difference? I, you know, it's a complicated question. I think yeah. it. I personally think it has to do with tone, and uh, you know, like my book does not have like a hopeful tone, for example. Right. <laughs> Much to the dismay of people yeah. who still think it's YA, but you, your so book does. Ultimately, yes. Yeah. And and it is it is all of a sudden when it when a book is is YA when you decide you know this is going to be marketed to teenagers it does change some of the decisions you make. Did you have it, to take out, like, sex and... Well, you didn't, though. But, There's well, there. I did. Um, <laughs> I kept some. I mean, you can't write about teenagers and not have sex. That's right. Um, but my, I, at a certain point, my editor said, you have, you have drugs, violence, and sex. Pick one. Oh, um, well, that's So I picked violence. Um, yeah, because that, wow. because that was really the heart of that was what was lying at the heart of the story was like these kids sort of acting out in this way, and along the way, like mm-hmm. the drugs and sex kind of seep in. But it, that it was, it actually made the, it made the book much better. Um, and that was sort of his secondary point was that all the all the stuff that they're doing, they do all this sort of outlandish, really risky stuff, and if if they're also sort of drinking a lot or or doing drugs, it undermines sort of the like true meaning of why they're doing that you know like it's, it's more do, compelling doing, if they do yeah. that stuff sober they were doing um, this stuff very intentionally right doing stuff we mean like stealing cars and yes. like committing crime what did you say this book is like fight club meets something um, perks of being a wallflower perks of being a wallflower 
are, right. which is so yeah. So in the book, the Colin like really socially awkward kids being violent. Yeah, really socially <laughs> awkward kids like learn how to be criminals. Yeah. <laughs> and it, but they're doing it because they're searching for meaning in life. Um, I wanted to read you a quote. So the other day, I didn't do too much research to talk to you because I, you know, it's you, but. Um, <laughs> I did listen to uh, Terry Gross, who I love, usually, um, interview John Green, the young adult author who has a new book out. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, quote, (laughs) Are you surprised that so many teens want to read stories about teens who have the kind of problems that make you feel different from everyone else, like having lost a parent or having cancer or dying? I mean, so many teenagers are just absorbed with school, finding a new boyfriend or girlfriend, having friends, da-da-da, but you're dealing with major problems in your books. (laughs) Now, I had a reaction to that, um, and I wonder what your reaction to that is, or response. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty bad question. (laughs) (laughs) But what about this idea, because... Well, I think that... Like, what do teenagers think about? Do teenagers think about getting a new boyfriend the teenagers in your book i think but think about it, much deeper things than that that's yeah. why i'm asking you oh i see yeah. yeah i mean i of course teenagers think about more than that i think that they also think about that but i but i think that in terms of like having you know writing about teens with problems like this like um i feel like on some level every every teenager and this happens in your book, like no matter who you are, no matter where your social standing in, in high school, you feel like an outcast because being a teenager is just such a weird feeling of like becoming a person and you like it, it there you don't feel normal in yourself. And I and I think that a lot of young adult literature speaks to that feeling in kind of almost like metaphorical ways, right? Mm-hmm. It's like Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I don't know why I thought of that example. But <laughs> because it's she, awesome. Right. Like, <laughs> she, it, it, it's not like you have to be a teenage witch to understand what's weird, what, you know, to connect <laughs> with that character, but she, right. it makes her different. Being a witch makes her different right. from everybody else, and that's how everybody feels that's in that right. moment. And so regardless of how serious or not serious your, your problems are as a teenager, I think they all feel so real and momentous that that that's why these kind of books kind of appeal to right because you're trying to figure out like how to be a person and how to live in the world and what does it mean to live in the world and i think teenagers think a lot about death and you know they they think about weighty things and and yeah i mean i I, ray is on this spiritual quest to just to understand what is the point of of living and he's in listening to the the scene you read you know what do you what's going to make you go to hell and i mean that to me the book appealed to me just on a human level i mean i almost could have been about anybody because he was just trying to understand life right yeah and so it comes he comes at it from sort of the catholic like upbringing but that that moment happens for everybody and i mean it continues to happen of like trying to figure out what why are we here what are we doing guys we're just sitting in this room how did we get here but i think for for me like i at some point everybody no matter what your upbringing you you kind of decide whether to believe in god or not right and um I have a lot of friends who grew up Catholic, who are no longer Catholic, don't believe in God, and I have a lot of friends who are still Catholic and practicing. And, Did you and go to Catholic God. school? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, but 
and it, but we now kind of take it as a foregone conclusion, you know, like these do, these people still go to church and these people think those people are crazy. Uh, but we never really talk about the process we went through to make that decision, you know, and it and it it seems like a foregone conclusion now. But at the at the moment when you first like, especially if you've grown up in a religious household when you first have that question of like wait a minute you mean the whole story of the universe like from which I get my understanding of why I exist could be wrong that's like kind of a pretty big deal that's sort of that's what Ray's going through yeah Yeah. I mean Ray takes it like really bad he takes it real (laughs) he takes it bad he takes it hard yeah he's a sensitive little guy that Ray yeah yeah yeah, I was just so fast. I mean, I didn't grow up with, with religion at all. I grew up in, and I went to like hippy-dippy Marin County, California schools where mm. nobody had religion. Um, so I, I was just fascinated reading about this this kid who, who did have a framework and was questioning this framework in such an intelligent way. I mean, I the thing I love most about this book is the way that you treat teenagers with such respect, you know? Mm. There isn't that thing that people do in pop culture where, you know, there's... Like they're thinking about just their next boyfriend. I mean, they're really full, rounded human beings. Um, did you start out to write about teenagers, or did you start out with this question of of religion, or did you start out with what? Do you, where, where did where? What was the like the little nugget that you had? That started um, I started. I I tend to write about teenagers a lot, and I never I never questioned why. And I still don't want to. <laughs> I just, uh, but yeah, I can't so, get away from them either. I keep meaning, I keep trying to, and I'm just um, like, oh, they're the most interesting. Right. So I think it, I think this book more than anything else started with the feeling. I was like, I'm just going to write about like high school and and how and how that felt in some way. Um, and then I had the the sort of concept, like the high concept of Colin having this kind of gang of mis- misfits who pay him to um, he like trains them how to commit these small time crimes and then they go out and, and perform this um, you know like they steal a car or they rob a store or something um, so the the feeling of kind of like the emotional like weight or like center of the book came first and that's sort of hard to describe what that is what does that and mean in pre- can everybody hear JJ Okay. Should I move this question? I'm just being a teacher now. I'm like, everybody, okay. everyone listening in the back. Um, but uh, no. What was the, in practical terms, what was the first thing that you wrote? What was the, the, first, the first thing, thing I, that you put down? The first thing I wrote book? was Cullen describing Ray. Um, and sort of, it didn't end up. I guess even the section that you read, it, it, that's a much different iteration of that. But it was sort of Cullen's voice as like this sort of like mischievous um, guy with, but who has actually has like a, a hidden depth to him, describing kind of what what he saw in Ray. And it was mostly like, here's this weird kid, and he's much younger than me, but for some reason I feel like connected to him in some way. Was it first person? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So, and you were saying uh, just before this, we we were over at the House of Pies, um, eating not pie, um, but uh, you were. I had a club sandwich <laughs> and some fries. I had soup and a bowl of bread. That was it. Was a very odd meal. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'm way off track. Um, this is the good. This is what they want to know. This is what you want to know. These are the real inside <laughs> stories of writing. It's very glamorous. Um, no, what did you just say? Because now I'm all off track. Uh, 
I had a Sorry. club sandwich. No. <laughs> first That's person. Me, yeah. First person. Oh, wait, oh, you were saying when we were eating the club sandwich that uh, everyone thinks you're Ray. Right, yeah. Uh, so but I'm the, like the cool bad boy. You, but actually, you're Colin. Like, that's yeah. obvious. Yeah, how do you feel like <laughs> everyone thinks you're like the, the nerdy kid who, who was the outcast? That's kind of... Well, I mean, to some... You know, I wasn't... It, we were laughing about it because Via's mom, my mother-in-law, like, is, is convinced that I was like horribly bullied now in, in high school as a result of the book. And nothing I could say can convince her otherwise. <laughs> Which only endears me to her more, so that's fine. Um, but I, I, I guess I would say that I, it's, it is interesting that I started with, with Colin because I feel like I accessed the book more through Ray. Like that... Ray's emotional like experience is the one where that's easiest for me to tap into. That's yeah. um, well, kind of an artist feeling, right? That you're kind of on the outs and you're right. like a little more sensitive. You're like a little more like permeable to the world. Right. And <laughs> and Colin is more like fantasy. It's like, what if I was super cool and I said this and <laughs> yeah, I like wore a leather jacket? Yeah. I have a guy like that in my book too, Damon Flintoff. Yeah. He was so easy to write because he was like a juvenile delinquent. And I was like, what if I were an angry 16-year-old boy? What would my life be like? It's right. what's way easier. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the other thing, oh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, which actually is he told me not to give him credit, but I'm going to give Andrew credit for this, is um, why did you set the book when you set it, and were you encouraged to make it contemporary rather than in this period after 9-11, and why did it matter to you to keep it in that period? Um, yeah, I was, well, I started writing it... Um, I, I started thinking that the things these these kids were doing somehow started to make sense to me in the immediate aftermath of of nine eleven, um, where it not that the, not I mean I don't know to the extent that this happened, but events like in a, during events like that, I feel like kids tend to be forgotten. And they and they have the opportunity to sort of form their own little world because everybody's so distracted by these big sort of global political like events, mm-hmm. um, and and there's only so much anxiety we can sort of we place all our anxiety there instead of like on our kids, and so they can <laughs> lash out. But it also affects them because I, I guess part of it was that feeling too. I was older when 9/11 happened, but for a lot of um, our my friends like we grew up in the 80s and 90s when at least to us this like as the univ- as the world was shown to us like everything was great you know there were there were no real threats to our security or safety or anything and then uh, and we were always sort of told stories of the 60s and and 70s when things weren't great but now but like now we got it all figured out so like we we were going to be cool hmm. but then 911 happened and it just like shifted everything hmm. um and which it did for everybody but i think particularly like if you grew up in those two decades mm-hmm. it was a it was a kind of a cataclysmic shift of how we saw the world and and our sort of status in america so i wanted to sort of show that how that manifested itself in those kids and i was encouraged to make it um, current, which I think Andrew cheated because he knew that. Um, but yeah, my editor, that was one of his first notes was, uh, was okay. And he said it like totally off the cuff. He's like, all right, so we're going to do this and we're going to set it in the present because that's better. And then I want you to like look at that type on page one. Yeah. And then, um, 
and then, so that was like one of the and then things you went that, like, oh. right? Yeah. yeah. So that was like one of the things that I pushed back on, and and it like kept coming. Edit like editors are really slick, you know. Like he'll he would present it after I would t- tell him like, no, I don't want to do that. And then the next time we talked, he'd be like, okay. And then so you're gonna put it in the present, oh, yeah, they like keep we talked giving about. Back to you. Like, no, we, we they just like perform That's a mind so trick true. on him. Um, Mine would keep writing it. He would do hand pencil notes, and he would just keep writing. He would keep crossing out the same line, and I'd be like, "No, <laughs> no." Yeah, so it never happened. Or maybe they actually just don't remember. But maybe they don't. Um, but his so his reasoning was just that that teenagers would be able to connect to it more if it was set in the present day. Um, that he and he didn't he didn't see enough reason for for putting it in the past. But I kind mm-hmm. of. I, I don't know that I ever really convinced them otherwise. I just did it the way I wanted to do it. Um, but teenagers still love Catcher in the Rye, right? I mean, teenagers connect to, like, humans. Oh, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I also feel like teenagers want to, I mean... Clockwork Orange. This is a totally different <laughs> experience, but, like, I think of um, Days of Confused, right? Like, you sort yeah. of, you enjoy seeing things that, that uh, stories about kids your age, but that happened in different eras. And so yeah. I thought maybe that would... And kids are people, right? They enjoy stories that are good, interesting stories about interesting characters. Yeah, right? I mean, all that would change is they would have cell phones, and it would ruin. Everything. Oh, it would ruin everything. <laughs> it would ruin everything, and you have to start. You have to write like text messages, right. and yeah. Yeah, that's a nightmare. Um, <laughs> just like in real life, it's a nightmare. Uh, okay, so I want to talk a little bit. I don't know how we are on time. Is anyone keeping time? Ann Lee, what are we good? You're in charge of me. Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> Uh, when you and I went to Squaw Valley the same year, mm-hmm. the writing conference, which if you guys haven't been there as writers, you should you have to go. It's wonderful. Janet Janet Fitch is here. She's a teacher there. It's just a fantastic experience. And you said to me, we were at lunch one day or something, and we were talking about how bad our early novels were, the ones that didn't sell. Or maybe mm-hmm. for you it was the one that didn't sell. For me it was like the many bad mm-hmm. ones that didn't mm-hmm. sell. And you said, I was like, well, yeah, because I, I couldn't write a plot. And you said, like, the plot of my first novel was, like, I'm 24 and I feel weird. Right. <laughs> I think that's what you said. Yeah. Which I just have never forgotten because it just made me laugh so hard because it was so true. Um, so I'm just wondering what shifted for you Yeah. from that to crafting a really a very exciting story, you know? Mm. Well, yeah, it's funny because I, after I said that, like, Lena Dunham is now a millionaire. Off of that, exactly <laughs> right. that, you know? It's like, you I had that out. idea. You had it. 24 and I feel weird. <laughs> um, I just, part of it is, part of it is thinking about the reader. When I wrote, like, right out of, grad, or in grad school, I wrote that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, it, it's such a simple shift, but it was so hard to, to make for me, maybe for other people, that I couldn't, I couldn't write and also think about how a, a person is going to be experiencing this. Like, why in the hell would anybody want to read this? Because mm-hmm. it was more like, I'm a genius and these are my feelings. <laughs> um, and, it, and it just, there was no, I mean, it wasn't. And if you can write well, like if you're a fluid right. writer and you have like a nice style, yeah, then you kind of feel like, well, this is nice. Like, this sounds good. And like, isn't yeah. that enough like my third grade teacher thought this was great and so so part of it was that part of it and and what really helped both with that and with um just figuring out plot was playwriting Hmm. um okay yes because it because you were one of the winners of the dear departed mpw's the one act play. The one act play. Yeah. Play that Lee Walkner put on. He's right. 
Um, Lisa? Oh, hi. But when, I guess part of it, like, so for the, thinking about the reader, like when you, when you write a play and put on a play reading, which many of you guys came to, some better than others, um, you, you have, like, the audience is right there, and you, it's a very clear indication of what's working and not, what's not working. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, the, there's no, like, forgiveness. You just, it's either working or it's not working, and that really makes you think about, okay, this is the kind of stuff people are responding to. This is the stuff that, that's just, like, me in love with my own words. Um, right. And the story stuff, I still think, is, is a work in progress. Like, it's, I'm still figuring out how to tell a good story. Um, but I'm getting closer, I guess. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your writing process, your weird rituals, writing groups? Who do you show um, your work to? Does Via get to read it? Via, yes. Via is, like, uh, great. Your wife? Yeah, People she's my wife. Know. Everyone knows. Um, <laughs> she's, she's the first person who sees everything, and then she'll give me, like, one of her many strengths is she has no qualms about giving an honest opinion <laughs> to anybody, um, even <laughs> especially her loved ones. So she'll give me, like, the early feedback, and then I'll go for a long walk where and just not talk to her for a while. <laughs> um, but, yeah. The, um, but what's your, like, daily grind? Like, or For this book, it was... It's you know, I wrote it over four or five summers because I, I can't write when I'm teaching. Um, so it all happened in different places. Like I wrote, I would wait. So you went in and out of it. Yeah. Oh my god, that's impossible. Because I me. couldn't keep going while I would try to keep going while I was teaching, but they're just like, "Can you look at my thesis statement?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do that. That's, annoying. that's so annoying when they do that. Uh, yeah. But I mean, some of the like, I had some good rituals. Like one for one summer, I I wrote in the in the lower stack, the lower level stacks of USC's Doheny Library, which is really cool because I would, I would like walk across the campus and it would be like 110 degrees, really hot, <laughs> uh, and but it was like an empty summer campus, and I would go down like into the depths where it like smelled like like mold to punish and yourself. Or well, it's just like there's no distractions. no distractions. It's like you're sort of. It's like I think of it as like go. I'm just crawling into my own brain. Mm-hmm. And one time, actually, I was down there. And, like, all summer, I was just down there alone. Like, why would you go into the lower library stacks when it's, like, a beautiful L.A. summer? Because you're a writer. Right. Yeah. And one day, Janet Fitch walked by. <laughs> and, and it was the weirdest experience because I was, like, so in the world of writing my book. And I saw Janet walk by. And I, I had the thought as though, like, there was a narrator in my head. I was like, there goes the novelist Janet Fitch. <laughs> And I watched her walk by, and I didn't say hi to her or, like, call out to her. I just watched her go. And then after it happened, I was like, I don't know if that really happened. And then I went back to writing. Dude, I read at Panera. Is, uh, has become my favorite thing to tell people. And I often have, like, I'm staring at people, and I, I have no idea that I'm staring at them because I'm in my book, you know, and they look at me like, yes, yes, and I'm like, oh, God, oh, you know, because you do, you go, if it's working, you go right. into this other world, and it really doesn't matter where you are, in yeah, a way, and yet yeah, it totally yeah. does matter. Right. Like, I have to be at Panera. The same place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now it's now it's different, because we have, we have a kid, so I'm just like, I'll be like, oh, I have ten minutes, I'll just make toast and, like, write this fucking sentence, and like, <laughs> Is that right? You yeah, you just have to kind home? of grab time whenever... It's like, I, I've stopped, um, it's fun if you can do it, but I've stopped, like, um, fetishizing the writing process, just because I have mm. to, like, get, get it that done. sounds very mature. Well, you should try it. Yeah. I'm 
not Should really. We not quite there yet. From our, from that oh, one. yeah. Let, do you guys have questions for JJ? Oh, just don't be intimidated. Mine are really good, I know, but yeah. Yes, you. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, outlining. Um, not very. I would, for this one, I, I sort of do like ma like major plot points, I guess. So for this one, I had, like, for the first half of the book, I had two big moments I knew I wanted to hit. So I wrote to those moments. And along the way, I just sort of followed where I was going. And then I did the same thing for the second half of the book. Um, I just had, like, you know, the big points I knew I wanted to get to. Um, but I'm much better at it now because this book was, I was still sort of, I didn't have a reliable method. Um, and it ended up, there was a lot of un deleting and rewriting. Um, but now I've, I'm better at sort of coming up with, I guess, more points that I know I want to hit. You know, so like for a, there'll be like 12 to 14 for the book of like I know I got to get here, here, and there. And then when I'm writing, I just figure out like I know that's where I'm going, so figure out how to get to that next point. But how do you figure out what those points are? You just like think of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I but then the other, the, the, the con of, of outlining is that sometimes it gets boring, right? Because if you... It's really hard to stay emotionally invested. It's like it, 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 it presents, it makes a distance between you and your, the work. It's like when you get it out in an outline, then it, it feels more like homework to actually get Right, it, it starts feeling like, and then you feel like, well, I have to write this scene about, uh, like, I get locked into these weird, like, logistical problems where I'm like, okay, I gotta get them uh, from this room to that room, and then I'll write, like, ten pages, like, well, I walk down the hallway, and then they, like, put their right hand on the doorknob, and they walk in the right. room, and then it's like, whoa, just write the interesting part, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you have to also to leave space for those weird moments, like, were there any weird things that came into the book, like, like for example in my book I had somebody like during a sex scene like go pull out some dental floss and like floss the other <laughs> one's teeth and I was like I don't know where that came from my husband used to live with a dentist like maybe that's why but <laughs> did you have anything like that that it was like just a weird little thing that came from yeah yes for sure and most of that stuff stayed in the like what's the, what's the, what's the thing Do like you have there an was example? there was a moment where um Colin gifted like a I don't know it was like a papery butterfly like ornament and there was she had a moment where she sewed it into her arm as like a into her skin into her skin yeah um That's and my cool. agent like loved that and that was the first thing my editor was like you're crazy like that cannot go in. <laughs> <laughs> but he was right like it and it's yeah. it was that shift of okay i'm writing for teenagers now and like you want to be like this yeah. is my art but you have to consider that like the your if your audience your audience is a little bit like less mature and huh. and things like that can be triggering for, for sure, people. So. Sure, sure, sure. But I bet that even though you took it out, it probably got you somewhere emotionally with the character exactly, yeah. that stayed in. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like I I had to do it to justify like things that she was feeling, but it didn't. It didn't. It was it was exploitive and stupid, and I hated it. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Don't put yourself down. It's all right. Uh, any other questions? Yes. Go ahead, ask it, ask away. Me? Yes, you. Um, uh, uh, JJ, I, uh, a published playwright once said that in, in writing as characters and 
have an idea of where you wanted to go. And they kept going somewhere else. And they find the, the characters finally in a way took over and dictated to him. I'm just wondering if you had that experience here because your characters seem so vivid. Was there ever a time when they kind of took over and took you someplace you weren't planning to go? Um yes. It it's um it's sort of like I mean it's it's similar to Elise's question about outlining. Like when you when you have the, you can have an idea in mind of what happens, but then once you start building the people, um, you realize like this is not the story that this that is going to fit for who this person is now that I know who they are. Like this is not the this can't be their ending because now I know that they're this person, so it their natural arc has to be something else. That's like on a macro level. It happens on a micro level too, I guess. Like I can't think of an example for this book, but in any given Right, yeah. Yeah, because like character and plot obviously are like so intertwined and it, and it's hard to separate them but when you're outlining it, it I think pulls you a little bit farther away from from character um, but it happens in individual scenes too where like you know in that weird semi-conscious state while you're writing a scene like a character will just do or say something um, and you're like oh, damn it it's like now now we're here did you want uh, <laughs> Brielle to to go for Colin? What do you mean? Like, did you plan to have her fall for him, or did she? Because she, when I was reading it, I kind of wanted her to fall for him, and I also kind of wanted her to like go home and like to put her pajamas on and go to bed. <laughs> 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 um, this happens very early. Yeah. Yes, I did. I, that was a, that, that was, was a purposeful. Yeah. Okay. I think that I, I guess she. Maybe this speaks to this is a good answer to or example for Barbara's question because it ended up not being. I thought that she would be like. Don't say how it ends. I don't. I don't want to. They have an interesting push-pull <laughs> kind of relationship. I guess is what I should say. Right. Where you're. She ended like, up she's holding. Kind of drawn to him, but she holds back. She and ended you up holding don't know where her own more than I than I it originally planned for her. Interesting. I was really impressed by how you wrote a teenage girl. Can you talk about that? You wrote a first-person teenage girl who was completely convincing, well-rounded. Um, was that Via? Should we thank Via for that? Or was that... <laughs> I, I mean, did. I was very impressed by that. Uh, I mean, I did talk to Via a lot about it. Um, I don't know. I'd, um, one thing Via said, I've, like my next book, the, the um, protagonist and narrator is a girl. Um, and recently via was like why do men always write like why don't they just write women as people mm. like they're they mm-hmm. always like fall into these like this is she's a girl so yeah. this is what's happening but it and obviously there's differences like we're not the same but but you can you just sort of the there's a lot that we have in common as humans so i guess <laughs> that's i, ta- right, I that's tapped right. into that stuff no that's so that true it's it's right yeah. 
And it's like when you start thinking of the person as girl or boy, then it's suddenly there's like a like right. a like a cardboard cutout figure that you're trying to yeah put them into. But, but like, yeah. be, I mean, getting married, being married to a woman uh, helps. It helps because you like understand a lot more about what what it's like. Because I and I grew up with two sisters, but I I didn't pay much attention to them. <laughs> <laughs> Have any other questions for JJ? Yeah, right here in the front. Do you feel like you used any of your experience as a professor teaching coming of age? <laughs> Did you use your experience as a professor teaching coming of age people? Um, probably more like implicitly, I guess. Maybe speak like what Lindsay was with that um, Terry Gross question, like just understanding that that they're real people. Like we. Um, you know, because in so many ways, like, teenagers are the worst, and, like, 18-year-olds are the worst, and we teach them, and we complain about them, and, like, especially at USC, we, like, we, we, it gets, like, stereotyped of what kind of kid goes there, but when you're in the classroom, or when you're, like, talking to them one-on-one, they're, like, so many of them are really smart, thoughtful, honest, kind of, like, secretly freaking out about the state of the world, like the rest of us. Um, so I think that it helped to, to have known so many of those kids. Fred. Uh, I was curious, did you write some of this before your son was born and some after your son was born? Yes, I um, was on a furious race. Oh. If so, if so, did your view of the world change before and after, and did that affect Hmm. your writing? Well, that's more complicated, Fred. <laughs> I did. I did write it. I was on a furious race against time to finish it before before my son came, and I didn't make it. Uh, actually, I did make it, but I sent it to uh, the one agent who I ended up representing me, and he said to rewrite the whole second half. <laughs> so that I had to do that when when Finn came. Um, I don't know that. I mean, the the one thing that changed was, um, in a weird way, it helped me write the book, finish the book, and think of myself as a professional writer, because I thought, okay, this human is like now solely our responsibility, and I need to be a real person. Uh, and this is the like I want to be a writer, a real person. So I'm just going to like fucking do it. Um, and yes. That, <laughs> and that so in that way it helped, like uh, sort of lock me into focus, but in, and and be more responsible about like the task. But I didn't beyond that. Like ideologically, uh, I'll have to write you an email in a couple months. And think about it. <laughs> Um, can you give us just on that note? Can you give us a pep talk? Because I about, feel uh, about just, what? just how you just how to be you, just how to be just how to be a real writer person in the mm-hmm. world. Because you know it's it's hard, and there's a lot of like wimpy, whiny writer talk out there about eh, I can't do it. Not among anyone here, just yeah. in the general ether. <laughs> and I just think it's nice to hear. Let's hear a pep talk about. Like, you know, what advice do you give to somebody who wants to be an artist in, in this crazy world that we're in where you're supposed to have a 401k? Right. Um, so, number one, don't quit your day job. <laughs> um, number two, I think the, I think the thing that um, 
I guess recently, like, I'm going to totally steal this from Janet Fitch, but there was a blog post that she wrote a few years ago that she posted again recently about writing with kids. And this is what I was talking about before, where, where she was sort of saying, like, stop romanticizing the writing process. Like, you don't need everything to be perfect. You don't need your special room with your special cup of tea and the exact music on And if you get that stuff, it's great, but you don't need it every day. All you need is, like, a few minutes here and there to, to check in with your work. Um, and if you get a couple hours, great, use them. But if you get, like, 30 minutes while your kid watches Daniel Tiger, that's that's <laughs> fine, too. Um, and I... So I guess it's... It's just that, and it's, um, like, the more material you can generate, the better. Because the other thing is, like, it's it's totally random. It just seems totally random whether or not a thing you create is going to be good or not. It does right? seem that like, way. It does there's some, things, some stuff comes out, and it's crap, and some stuff comes out, and it's great, and that's the reason why you just have to, like, keep trying. But, like, out. overall, like, we're arcing the arc justice what's this quote it's we're arcing toward improvement right yeah like over the long haul things are getting better yeah right yeah. maybe mean, not with like, the world like for, but with like our personal writing skill right it does yeah. get better you over time better. because yeah. you, if you don't give if you just refuse to give up right you will have to get better because you just do it so much you have to get a little better over time yeah and the other like so and another good piece of advice again like you don't have to take a playwriting class but like show your work to people yeah um and, and which is like the hardest thing in the world because like it's gonna not all gonna be great um but like if you have really good people like you guys who won't tell you if if a play reading went really bad um you'll just be there anyway um then then that's great and um if you Again, you show your work to people like to get feedback, but also like you never know what where it's going to go. You know, you say, "Hey, I wrote this thing. You want to see it?" And maybe they'll show it to somebody else, and maybe they won't. But who knows? Yeah. So generate it and disseminate it. <laughs> there you go. There's, there's teacher JJ. <laughs> um, well, I just want to thank you for this opportunity to talk to you about your book. I, I just want to say that JJ asked me to to read this. Um, and it was my first chance to ever give a blurb for a book, and it just like made me feel really excited. Um, but it was such like a genuine pleasure and joy when your friend sends you a book, and it's so good. You're just—I mean, I was just. There's a scene at the end which I, I won't quote it because I don't want to ruin it for anyone. But I actually gasped. I actually just—it was so beautiful. There was just this one line. It's about the map. Mm. I—I'm I, just so pleased for you and excited for you we're not the closest of friends but we come out of mpw and i just feel so excited for for your success so i hope everyone will buy and read and share this book thank you beautiful book you've been listening to the skylight books author reading series Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.